episode 12. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Guy? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Um, congratulations on your book with Kevin Coe. Thank you. The Ubiquitous Presidency. Um, I had to look it up. What does that mean? Uh, ubiquitous means everywhere. So it's uh, the way that I kind of, the image that I have in my mind when I, th when I think of the ubiquitous presidency is it's like water on cracked pavement. It's going to find every crevice, every little indent. And so this is, this is the everlasting image that I will probably have in my head until the day I die about this. I, I love it. So, but what does it mean? All right. So um, leaders of, of nations. Um, have a relationship with us, the voters, the citizens, through yeah. social media, traditional media, and they are part of our lives every second of every place that we allow them to go in there? Yeah, so it's an all of the above approach, just what you said. Um, we can think of this as political leaders have a number of goals that they have to meet in their public communication. They have to be visible, which means they have to gain attention for what they're talking about, obviously. Uh, they also want to control the message as much as possible. And then also they need to adapt to audiences. They need to adapt to contexts. And what happens is in a media environment that has transitioned away from the sort of dominance by mass media. So that's television, radio, newspapers, particularly in the United States and other Western democracies towards digital and social media. What that means is presidents and political leaders have to change their approach to public communication. And that entails chasing audiences that might be in venues that have nothing to do with politics and have everything to do with sports, culture, entertainment. And so that's partly what inspires this book is in thinking about how presidents are actually engaging in the sorts of 21st century political communication and public communication. And what we find is it looks like they're everywhere. They right, well, are, let's, hold on, yeah. let's take it back because there's so much to cover. Let's do it slowly, um, just to build it up a little bit. Uh, 1992, 1991, Bill Clinton. Um, it, it seems kind of trivial now, right? But he goes on Arsenio Hall late night and he plays the saxophone. Is this the kind of example that you were yeah. talking about? Yeah, so in the book, we focus a lot on government in terms of what presidents do, but the 92 campaign is really the predictor of what's to come because you have Bill Clinton up against an incumbent president, George H.W. Bush, uh, man of Texas, uh, and um, George H.W. Bush doesn't want to appear in these sorts of media settings that make him seem unpresidential. And so it's not just Arsenio Hall and Bill Clinton, but you know, Bill Clinton going on, you know, Larry King Live and CNN, going on these sorts of like talk radio, talk entertainment formats on television as well. George H.W. Bush says, no, I'm not going to do that. And Bill Clinton wins the election. <clears throat> so what you get is the normative break from the sort of traditional settings <clears throat> where 
the president has appeared to now these sorts of more expansive settings. So 92 is one of these big inflection points in understanding where the modern president now goes to communicate. So we have uh, Nixon Kennedy with the first debate. So that's kind of like uh, the first initial preview. Next, we have Bill Clinton. And, you know, fast forward 20 years later, when a president is sitting on the toilet and tweeting about Rosie O'Donnell and Hillary Clinton, right, with Trump, how do we get there? Can you talk about this whole transformation? The transformation really has to do with a combination of technology change. So you have to get the digital and social media technology to come about, but also you need fragmentation in the traditional media environment too. You need cable. Uh, you need the ability of viewers to essentially decide whether or not they want to choose politics or not. And most individuals don't choose politics. They're going to HGTV and Property Brothers, or they're going to you know, ESPN's Red Zone. They're not going to watch the news. They're not going to watch the president give a speech anymore. So that's really the first big change that comes about. It's tech. It's, uh, and that's broadly defined in terms of platforms of traditional mass media platforms and digital and social media. The other big change though is sociological. The other big change is major diversification of the American public. And that becomes really important as well too, because what that means is when presidents actually speak to the public, they have to, in a lot of ways, engage in coalitional communication. They have to be able to talk to different groups. They have to be able to speak to the diversity of American life. So these changes come together. And wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry, yeah. I, gotta, I gotta pause. It's yeah. such an important point because you're saying one thing, but I, I think what you just said can be interpreted in two different ways. So I want, I want to stick on this point. It's an important yeah. one. Coalition communication, right? Does that mean that a president is speaking to his or her own coalition of supporters and voters, or does it mean that it's trying to speak to various ones outside of their own political and partisan coalition? Yeah, both. And also the ubiquitous presidency, when we think about this, I'm glad you bring this up, Guy, because the ubiquitous presidency allows for these both possibilities. However, what we've seen is the possibility for a president to only engage their own base using these particular media strategies. And so we can talk about, this is, this is where we get into the normative kind of dimension, like is this appropriate, is this good or bad for democracy with these sorts of trends? But in general, when Kevin and I were trying to come up with, you know, and thinking about what these trends were look like, we actually stuck on pluralism for a while. We had to think through this particular aspect. And the reason why is when we initially were thinking about this in 2015 and 2016 with Barack Obama and really the presidents that had preceded him immediately, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, we interpreted the sorts of appeals to pluralism or these sorts of coalitional appeals as something that was a net positive for presidents to do they would what do you mean what do you mean what do you mean by pluralism by, by speaking to various audiences yeah, outside so of your own coalition? Yeah, so, yeah so pluralism we can think about it at its most basic it's politics based on group um affiliation or group identity mm -hmm. and um and how group identity is taken into account in sort of american politics and american life 
And the example that kind of sticks in my head from even pre-Obama is when George W. Bush runs for re-election in 2004, I think he wins close to about 45% of the Latino and Hispanic vote in the United States. The outreach efforts that George W. Bush engaged in to Latinos and Hispanics also included during his time in office going on the sorts of programming that was targeted at the Latino and Hispanic community, talk radio, um, also um, a television programming as well in these particular formats. And so it's a good example of how presidents attempt to reach, uh, reach groups of voters, reach groups of citizens, of individuals that might not necessarily see themselves in the sort of mass appeal messages that presidents so, have traditionally done. So Josh, isn't the conclusion ultimately the title of your next book with Kevin, which is The Ubiquitous Campaign? I mean, what? ultimately we're, we're campaigning 24 seven, especially think about people in Congress who are up for election every two years, right in the house. But I mean, even in, even in other countries, think about nations like Italy and yeah. Israel where coalition governments don't really last long and leaders are 24-7 uh, campaigning and really are talking to their own coalition, their own voter blocks throughout, the, uh, throughout social media or traditional communication. Yeah, so this is actually, uh, we probably won't write this book because it's already been written in the political science literature at least. It's called the, per it's called the permanent campaign. Um, mm -hmm. It's like this phrasing, which essentially means that we've moved Long, even long before the sorts of digital and social media, we've moved into this sort of constant campaign in the United States. And it, what, it, what it ultimately means though, is that governing looks a lot like campaigning. And mm -hmm. so the separation of them is important. Bill Clinton is actually another great example of this in the sense of he brought over from his campaign into government, into his administration, a lot of his former campaign folks. Mm -hmm. The challenge was many of the campaign folks didn't know how to turn off the campaign and kind of switch to how do you govern and uh, engage in administration of a large federal government. So that was a challenge at first for Bill Clinton. And it has only accelerated since then in terms of thinking about, you know, the, the, the classic, I think the, what will be the classic example is on inauguration day, January 20th, 2017, uh, Donald Trump was basically filing paperwork for reelection mm -hmm. already. So that I think is a, another example of these particular trends uh, in terms of constant campaigning and the sorts of constant communication now that we see from presidents and other political leaders when they're trying to govern. I had a conversation with Dean Freelon um, about high quality versus low quality information when it comes from the news media, right? And from yeah. social media and from different channels on the right and on the left. Um, how does the ubiquity of president, presidential communication, how do you think that uh, impacts the quality of content and information that they deliver to the citizens? I'd have to think about what the, I have to think about like how to define quality uh, because okay. I think that's there's- a, That's uh, a fair question. I, yeah, I think that there's, I think there's normative considerations about what- Let, let me, let me rephrase. So like, so let, here's- Let a, me so rephrase, here's a, are, there, 
are they essentially yeah. dumbing down everything in order to be on on you know <laughs> on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or or the cable news shows? The, yeah, yeah, the the uh, the president in a lot of ways and political leaders become content producers. So because they're producing so much content, it would make sense that some of that is not necessarily going to be what some some individuals would deem beneficial to voters in a democracy. Uh, so we document, for example, the sorts of, you know, presidents make appeals to, for example, accessibility, the sense that, you know, they are reachable, that they can engage in interaction with people in these online spaces. We know that's really not the case. Uh, you know, uh, communication researcher Jenny Strummer Galley's work on political campaigns, for example, she basically makes the argument that campaigns engage in controlled interactivity. They give the appearance that they're going to be connected to voters, but they're not. Uh, and same thing that we've noticed in terms of presidential communication too. It's just not, it's not, it doesn't live up to the hype of interactivity of what that looks like of that true back and forth like you and I are having here. Um, presidents also are engaging in more personality-based appeals and not only talking about themselves and the sort of behind the scenes, behind the curtain, uh, those types of things, but also the sorts of revealing nature of their personality. So Donald Trump's angered, anger-filled tweets are a good example of how he used anger to connect with voters and with, and with individuals. So if we think about these particular things, we can say, what kind of information is beneficial for, for voters in a democracy, for people in a democracy. Obviously, policy information is important. Um, but what we also see is that, you know, understanding how policy is connected to identity is important uh, and how it's connected to voter interests. Those things become very important. And sometimes the appeal can't necessarily be this will lower your prescription drug cost by 25%. It has to be framed in a different way. And that I think is where we have to go in terms of thinking about these particular types of things. Um, and I, I, I wanna pause and give a great quote by my co-host on the public diplomat, Guy Chet, who always talks about the fact that in politics, uh, messaging goes through the heart and not through the brain. And, uh, you know, Yes, people want to learn about prescription drug policy, but not really, right? What they want to learn about is is the meat, the red, you know, the, the meat, the the red, you know, the red blood that you know the the us versus them. And I want to jump for a second and talk to you about uh, populist, so-called populist leaders around the world, right? Yeah. You just came back from Brazil, and we saw this in the Philippines, and we see this uh, with some of the right. Uh, right candidates in Europe right now, the Italian election coming up in Hungary and all around the world, where uh, presidents, leaders of nations are using uh, social media platforms to essentially say, look, here's our message that the mainstream media will not deliver. Right. And where they're expressing is not necessarily policy-based or it has some policy elements, but it's really about a frustration. Yeah. And sharing your frustration with people who share similar frustrations and um, lack of trust in mainstream media and establishment politics. So yeah, talk, it, let's, talk about, let's talk about Brazil. You just came back. 
Yeah, so uh, I had the opportunity to visit uh, Brasilia, Manaus, and also Sao Paulo uh, a couple weeks ago um, to meet with journalists who are covering and will cover the upcoming presidential campaign. And so we do have an instance here of in Brazil of a political of a political leader uh, and President Bolsonaro who has branded himself a populist, branded himself basically as the Trump of the tropics, uh, and um, uses digital and social media, uses alternative platforms to essentially go around the traditional media sources, journalists in that regard. And that includes using the sources for dis and misinformation. So if we're thinking about the, the type of high quality, low quality argument, one of the, I think I would argue that it's very easy to put disinformation, the intentional spread of false messaging in the low quality bucket. We can at least, I think, put that in the low quality bucket. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we're seeing that in a lot of ways in many, many countries that have decentralized fragmented media systems. And so the challenge there for journalists, just as the challenge for journalists was in the United States under Donald Trump, is the sort of flood of content that's created. Uh, the president as content creator in the ubiquitous presidency means the zone is flooded constantly with, in, with content. And that includes bad content in some instances. This is the normative dimension of the ubiquitous presidency. This is the normative dimension of this, which is, you know, the same technology that allows for, for example, Barack Obama to use digital and social media to connect with groups of individuals who might have been marginalized from traditional American politics. The same technology is then used for ends that include mainlining disinformation into particular communities during elections, during administrations. And so that is the persistent challenge of this, of this approach is how do other actors in a democracy, journalists, other political officials, citizens who will vote, how do they hold elected officials who engage in these actions accountable? when they're purposely avoiding the sorts of accountability that journalists give, when they are attempting to flood voters and individuals with disinformation. So people throw up their hands and say, I don't know what's true anymore. These are the, these are the challenges that we're confronting in the Americas, as you noted, we're confronting it as well in Europe and in Asia and in the global South. We have to be thinking about ways in which, you know, the defenders of democracy can be using these particular tools that are being used for anti-democratic ends in a lot of instances. Yeah. And, and we, we have to recognize that what we're talking about really is a conversation that happens in democracies, right? Because in democracies, uh, you know, the president and the media are one. That's right. It, 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 right. And this was exactly my message in terms of to many journalists that I was meeting with in Brazil who understand this in a very, very different way than many other countries because, you know, they emerge only in the past 35 years from their own military dictatorship. Um, 
And so the sorts of warning signs that they see from, the, from populist political leaders who are using anti-democratic communication. And just, and just so, you know, I'm not throwing out this phrase just as a way of saying, oh, all, all of these things are bad. What I'm talking about with anti-democratic communication is uh, attacks and threats to journalists. Uh, we're talking about things like attacks on democratic institutions, including free and fair elections, challenging the integrity of elections. And so we're putting it in the bucket of essentially any type of communication that is meant to undermine democratic processes and institutions is the sort of anti-democratic communication. And we're seeing that not only in, you know, in the global south in Brazil, we're seeing that in the United States as well. We're seeing that in Hungary, as you noted. Um, this is the sort of discourse that is meant to essentially undermine the roots of democracy and move more towards uh, autocratic aims. So Josh, going back to the question I asked you in Freelon, which is, did social media live up to its promise? Do you think social media empowered citizens and democracies or undermined it, or a little bit of both? This is a tough question. And the reason why it's tough is because I, I look at kind of the digital and social media elements here as almost like accelerants or catalysts for processes that were in place. I think what they've uncovered is massive inequities in societies in, uh, in, in groups of individuals who feel like they are disconnected from mainstream politics. And that's fertile ground for populism. That's fertile ground for populist leaders. And digital and social media allow for individuals to be able to coalesce around these sorts of shared grievances, anger, uh, to then be able to use that in sorts of direct action against democracy. We see that with January 6th in the United States as, a, as an important example of what's going on here. And so I would argue that in, in one way, the tools are the same tools that can be used for pro-democracy ends can also be used for anti-democratic ones. And also we need to be thinking about as well, how is the infrastructure of these sorts of digital and social media platforms beneficial or not for democracy? The algorithms, how are they potentially promoting, for example, particular types of negative emotions and negative grievance uh, against, against uh, institutions, political leaders, and 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 those types of things. That's, that's a really good question. And algorithm and bots are a whole different conversation. Yeah, whole di different, you know, whole different, different that we don't necessarily need to get into here. But it. Uh, so so let me see a different question. What's next? So if um, you know if Kennedy went on television, right? So yeah. from ra radio to television, and if Clinton went on Arsenio and played the sax, and then Trump took over Twitter. What is it the president going to do, he or she, 10, 20, 30 years from now? Are we thinking about TikTok videos? Are we thinking about metaverse, um, you know, communications? What do you, what do you see as uh, the future? That's a good question. And honestly, I think, I think I haven't really thought about the next step because we're just still in the early stages of the sorts of ubiquitous um, kind of communication that we're seeing here. And... The reason why I say that is we're still dealing with 
the ways in which presidents are adapting to this environment. So, uh, so you know, Barack Obama steps into an environment that's very different than George W. Bush. And when I say very different, I mean, tail end of George W. Bush's administration, 2007, 2008, that's when YouTube and Twitter are coming on the scene. And so Barack Obama suddenly has to deal with a huge expansion in the social media environment. So for him and for his administration, it was some of the experimentation that happens during the campaign, and then also beginning to institutionalize these practices in the White House. That I think is important. Donald Trump comes in, has a completely different approach. And, and the approach there entails much more attention-based, I'm gonna throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. It's a product though of the environment that basically says at any one moment, if Donald Trump would have backed off, there was a very legitimate possibility that people wouldn't have thought of him. People, even Donald Trump, that people would have moved on to something else. And we see that actually his post-presidency, the risk of what happens with deplatforming, the risk of what happens with those particular, when you don't have the availability of particular platforms is the attention capacity goes elsewhere from, yeah. from individuals. And, and so, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, President Trump is, I mean, I always thought that Bill Clinton is the ultimate communicator, but it seems like Donald Trump is because you see that CNN and MSNBC are still talking about him years after he left the presidency. He is the number one reality star and there's no way around it. I, well, and it's not only just the attention now, but the attention now is a fraction of the attention that he got during his presidency. And so it is kind of thinking about how presidents are adapting to it. When we look at Joe Biden, Joe Biden, I think in many ways has struggled with essentially the expansion that Donald Trump did. He then falls into a vacuum where journalists, where people have suddenly become accustomed not only to the president being everywhere, but essentially being on their screen every second. And now we have Joe, President Biden, who is nowhere. And, and this is a president who's not meeting the press. He's not talking a lot. The press conferences are very limited. He's handled 24 seven by his controllers. This is really the opposite. So, you know, if you look at Biden's low approval ratings and there are many reasons for his low approval ratings, uh, you know, whether he support him or not, uh, there has to be a dimension of communication. And Joe Biden is not a modern president when it comes to social media and communicating with the American public. Would you agree? It's, yes, to some degree, there is definitely a traditionalism when it comes to kind of going back to more like rhetorical presidency things of focusing the attention on the big speech and those, and those types of things. You know, Joe Biden and his team do engage regularly, fairly regularly in social and digital media. Uh, it's the ability of the president to also be able to go into sorts of alternative spaces, which is very important. So Joe Biden recently, when, within the past couple of months, goes on late night. Uh, um, his first appearance in his presidency on, on late night. And this is actually, this is an important setting. And the reason why it's an important setting is this is one that was during political campaigns has been important for candidates, but also during presidencies, Barack Obama goes into these spaces. You can think of like between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis, 
mm -hmm. uh, you know, going on The View. And so Joe Biden attempts to go into this space and you can tell that there is a sort of awkwardness about it. And that I think comes through in terms of how does the president convey the sorts of accessibility and personality in these settings. And so I think to your point, Guy, the reason why he is he is managed in particular ways is because of his level of comfort with the ways in which journalists now engage in sorts of questioning, or you look at the ways in which social and digital media communication are done and where you can look to potentially greater success in his administration is in some ways you could look at uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg as a good kind of messenger uh, for the administration. You can even look at some of the messaging that Kamala Harris has done as well. And so there is a, there is a woodenness to the way in which Joe Biden engages the ubiquitous presidency. You do see it in some instances and you do see attempts at it, which illustrates that presidents have to engage in this. However, presidents are going to engage in these sorts of ubiquitous practices to varying degrees based on their own skills. And that I think the communication gap here cannot be overlooked, as you mentioned. Interesting, yeah, I, um, this is, uh, I can talk to you for hours, but uh, we're running out of time. Uh, Josh, as you look forward to the midterms and then to the 2024 presidency or presidential cycle, um, do you think that social media will play a larger role than ever this time around? I think what we're gonna see is the sorts of push and pull on the role of digital and social media in terms of deplatforming particular candidates or particular elected officials, whether or not they should take down particular information um, and how they're going to do that. Twitter just announced, for example, its policy on how it's gonna deal with the election. Uh, uh, my, uh, my colleague and friend, who is also a colleague and friend of Dean Freelons at UNC, Daniel Kreese, uh, had a very uh, kind of important pushback on the sorts of action that Twitter was taking related to the election by essentially saying, you can't do this just during a so-called election season, whatever that looks like. Like these sorts of um, election misinformation and disinformation, the sorts of threats to democracy that we see don't now coincide just with elections. And so platforms are gonna be engaging in these sorts of questions and processes and, and those types of things. The other thing I'm gonna be on the lookout for though, as I said, and it relates to uh, some of the work that I've just done internationally is what is happening internationally? What is happening in Brazil? What's happening in Italy? What's happening in, um, in countries that are dealing with these sorts of rise of uh, populism, particularly right-wing populism, uh, the sorts of anti-democratic communication. How is that being dealt with? Because I think that there might be models out there for the United States to follow for understanding how to confront these particular uh, these particular deficiencies of uh, of of information or of content in di in digital and socially mediated spaces. So I'm going to be looking out for those too to get an idea. I, I'll, I'll just give you I'll just give you a little note when you think about it. Don't only look at right-wing populism, look at left-wing populism, look at left-wing populism in France, in the, the regional elections in France, 
look at left-wing populism in South America, in, in Colombia, in Bolivia, all around. I mean, um, you know, we we see the rise in populism even in the United States, the progressive movement and Trumpism. I mean, populism is very much alive and well everywhere in the world on both sides, and to an extent, social media is empowering it in many ways. Well, Josh. And Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, and 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 guys, final, I'll give you the, I'll give you the final word. Yeah, no, I no, I you know I completely agree with your point in terms of we have to be looking at it regardless of political ideology and things. We also have to be thinking about here the importance of in what ways is it being channeled towards pro democracy or anti democratic ends, and that in in that yes there is some of that happening on both sides, but it's not symmetrical, and that I think is really important to understand is. If we're looking at trends across countries, it's not symmetrical in the ways it's being used to go after democracy. So that is something that we have to be careful of and we have to be thinking about going forward. Josh Keiko, USF, ubiquitous presidency with Kevin Coe from University of Utah. Thanks so much for coming out on The Public Diplomat. Thanks so much, Guy, appreciate it. All right, have a great day. Thanks.